The Writer's Toolkit is published by Nick Hearn Books. Order direct from the publisher and get 20% off this and other great titles. Visit nickhearnbooks.co.uk. A virtual coffee with inspiring playwrights and screenwriters. This is the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Yes, welcome to the second episode of the second season of the Writer's Toolkit podcast, a vehicle designed exclusively to allow me the opportunity to spend time in the company of playwrights and screenwriters whose work I admire immensely. And the conversation in this episode is no exception. Following the world premiere production of their debut collaboration, Every Day She Rose, Toronto's Now magazine wrote that Nick Green and Andrea Scott are two of the most exciting voices in Canadian theatre. I've been fortunate to read some fantastic new writing out of Canada recently, dipping into the catalogue of my publisher's Canadian counterpart, Playwrights Canada Press. And after reading Every Day She Rose, I just had to reach out and extend an invitation to Andrea and Nick to join me on the podcast. Every Day She Rose exists where racial and queer politics collide. It's the 2016 Toronto Pride Parade where celebrations are brought to a standstill by Black Lives Matter protesters. Now, best friends Mark, a white gay man, and Kathy Ann, his straight black friend, are about to discover that the things that brought them together could be the very things that will drive them apart. This fractured love story has been called a hilarious and heartbreaking stare-down of privilege and oppression. The play was first produced by Nightwood Theatre at Buddies in Bad Times Theatre in Toronto in November 2019, and despite pandemic disruptions, has already enjoyed a second outing earlier this year. Testament to both the intelligent and original storytelling, and the conviction to face themes of race, politics, power and privilege that underpin this bracing play head-on. Coming up... That scene where the confrontation of why did you want to write with me? And it was, well, I wanted to write with you, Andrea, because you're a brilliant writer. And I'm like, well, of course, who wouldn't want to work with me? <laughs> <laughs> That's not arrogance. That's your sense of humor. That's your sense of humor. The thing is, I kind of remember, I think I feel like I actually remember us having that conversation where it was like, well, why wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously. <laughs> the Writer's Toolkit Podcast with Paul Kalbergi. Andrea Scott's play, Eating Pomegranates Naked, won the RBC Arts Professional Award and was named Outstanding Production at the 2013 Summerworks Festival. Further accolade at the festival followed with Better Angels, a parable in 2015, and Don't Talk to Me Like I'm Your Wife in 2016. Andrea's play, Controlled Damage, which explores the life of Canadian civil rights icon Viola Desmond, received its world premiere at Neptune Theatre and will open at London, Ontario's Grand Theatre in January 2023. Aside from her work on stage, Andrea also works as a screenwriter and story editor. In 2019, she was awarded the McGee TV Diverse Screenwriting Award by the Toronto Screenwriting Conference for her first TV script, Dust to Dust. Her dark comedy, Bad Habits, landed her a job in the all-black writer's room of the BET and CBC show The Porter. 2021 saw her winning $10,000 from Amazon and the Indigenous Screen Office, pitching her coming-of-age dramedy, Done. Andrea is currently working in the writer's room on the 15th series of Murdoch Mysteries. Nick Green's work has been seen on stages across Canada and in New York. This includes his play Body Politic, which explores the legacy of one of Canada's first LGBT publications and won the Dora Award for Outstanding New Play in 2017. Nick's other works include Happy Birthday Baby J for Shadow Theatre, 
Dinner with the Duchess, which premiered at Toronto's Factory Theatre, and Coffee Dad, Chicken Mum and the Fabulous Buddha Boy, a solo show about coming out, the production of which won three Elizabeth Sterling Haynes Awards. In addition to being an award-winning playwright, Nick is the creator of the Social Distancing Festival, a platform designed to celebrate work that was cancelled, delayed or disrupted due to the pandemic, and which is continuing to explore interesting ways to present new and developing work. Andrea, Nick, welcome. Hi. Hello. So nice to meet you. Yeah. Thank you for joining me. It's it's great to meet you guys. I've just finished reading your play for a second time, actually. Mm. I have it here. The lovely guys at Playwrights Canada Press sent me your play about a month back, and it was a fantastic read. So I'm definitely excited to, to dive into this conversation. Mm-hmm. Maybe, Andrea, if you could kick off and paint a picture of your regular writing scene and the things that you have to have around you when you write. When I when I was working on this uh, play with Nick several years ago, I was living in a very small basement apartment, uh, like may- maybe maybe 450 square feet, but I don't even think it was that big. I'd been living there for over 20 years. So it was just me, um, my computer that was on a, a dinner tray, like those TV trays. That's what I would work on. And um, a cup of tea. And that's it. You know, I didn't, I don't write with music at all. I know some people who really like having music, but I don't, I don't have music. Um, I just need to have a quiet space. Um, I like to work in my apartment. Uh, I don't usually go to like a coffee shop or anything. And I like to have a notebook yeah. so that I can scribble things down because I feel like I can process my thoughts and ideas about character and what have you if I have a notebook that I can work through as well. You forgot gin and tonic, Andrea. I know you. Okay. There's a gin and tonic okay. not far away. All right. Away. Depending on the time of day that I am writing. If I'm writing before 340. Um, gin and tonic. Th- gin and tonic. If I'm writing before 340, <laughs> it's gin and tonic. Double gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> truth. 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 What about yourself, Nick? Um, there are some things that vary and some things that stay the same. Uh, I always have a desk um, where I like to write. And recently I've been doing the two screen thing. So I'm not hunched over a laptop. That was something that uh, the pandemic really brought to me to have a monitor and a separate keyboard. Definitely. I, uh, I, I can't sit still though very often. And so I'm usually pacing and moving about my apartment. And very often when I'm in the thick of it, I have to sit outside for periods of writing. So um, in my old place, there was a park nearby that had a pretty view and I would go sit on a bench until my computer battery died. Uh, Now I'm lucky enough to have a backyard I I disappear into sometimes. And then when I'm really, really in the thick of something, like stuck, the bathroom floor is my spot. So I like yeah, I lie down on the bathroom floor. And that's where, believe it or not, it's it's basically superstitious now because I once made a major crack into a show I was I was really stuck on while lying on the bathroom floor. And now that's where I go back to. Yeah. And I don't know, it's just really quiet and it's cool. Like it's cold mm. on the ground. And <laughs> I, I don't know what else there is to it, but that's kind of a spot I return to. Do you like to. stare at the ceiling? I, I stare at my laptop, but... Um, yeah, I guess oh. at the ceiling of it too. That sounds really weird. <laughs> Not at all. I'm going to stick to it. Yeah, whatever works. Yeah. And then in terms of no no music usually, unless I'm trying to immerse myself in like an era and then sometimes uh, yes. instrumental only mm. um, music from that era. Do you find yourself building kind of like project specific playlists or going to a particular genre based on different projects to kind of set that scene and get you in that headspace? 
Yeah, especially I write musicals as well. And very often me and the composer will have a shared playlist on YouTube or something Yeah, uh, where yeah. we kind of add inspiration to. What does a typical writing day look like for each of you guys? Um, you know, on the occasions perhaps when you have a whole day to dedicate to writing, are you kind of naturally morning writers or, you know, into the into the evening writers? When do you work best? I fluctuate back and forth. Um, I no longer have a full-time job, so I can just, I don't have the excuse of I just need some time to write. Now I have all the time in the world, so that means that I procrastinate. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, I was very good. I'm not, I'm not good right now, but I was very, very good at getting up in the morning, going to the gym, working out, uh, sitting in a coffee shop, doing a little bit of writing in a notebook. And then I would go home, have lunch, and then I would start writing at 1 PM. And I would try to write between three to four hours. And then I would have dinner and then I would watch some TV or I might do a little bit more writing and then try to make sure that I close my laptop at 8 PM. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely feel you there with um having the whole day to write can sometimes be sometimes be a bit of a bit of a curse. I think mm-hmm. I was at my most productive when I was juggling a full-time job and doing my masters and had two small children and those little half an hour spots that I would find here and there would be super crammed and super productive and suddenly now like I have pretty much while you know while my kids are at school that's I have my full day to, you know mm-hmm. to write and it's sometimes it can be the worst thing in the world having 6 hours thinking I really need to fill these up you know I feel like I should be productive and use oh, this yeah. time this pressure like yeah. with that, right? <laughs> How about you, Nick? Well, I can't relate to that. Um, <laughs> I'm a, I have a full-time job. I, I'm a social worker as well as a playwright. And so my writing is in evenings, weekends, and vacation times. Right. I think that there is something to the fact that you can't be like, well, I'm not going to be productive today because I have tomorrow, right? Like mm-hmm. when I'm on deadline, like it or not, I've got to write. Yeah. And so that's a gift as well as it makes me like question every life choice I I've ever made at times but um yeah to me um mornings are good evenings are very good unless i've had a really hard day um yeah so it tends to be evenings more than anything okay and how do you think your um individual preferences or approaches or routines have complemented or complicated perhaps this this collaboration with you guys working together yeah well we made it work because i had gotten a position at Stratford. I was um, being mentored in, in producing. So I ended up leaving town okay. for several months. And so we had to work doubly hard just to make sure that we could find time to work together. So I would be coming into Toronto once every couple of weeks, and we would carve out time to just do work for a couple of hours. And I think that was really helpful for us. Um, because I do remember us like talking about writing this play. And then several months went by, we did nothing. <laughs> and then one okay. day, Nick was like, hey, so... <laughs> Sky is asking if we have a draft. <laughs> we should probably start working on that. And then we we had to make a point of working on a schedule. You know, Andrea says months go by and we do nothing. The fact is months went by and we were working, you know, heavily on other projects. And so like, I think the big thing about collaborating is if you want to collaborate with someone who's really, really talented, you're going to deal with a difficult schedule. Like it's just the way it is. Um, Andrea isn't demanded, very respected and has a lot of opportunities. And I had quite a bit on my plate too. So it was a gift when we 
were able to get in the same room. It was a gift that we got into the Nightwood writing unit because that forced us Mm -hmm. to clear our schedule for certain times as well. Yeah, a playwright unit can really make you accountable. That's the thing. That's what's so wonderful about, you know, Toronto has a lot of great theatres and a lot of those theatres have playwright units. And I always try to encourage other new writers to just submit their work. You don't know what's going to come out of it, but it really does give you a, a structure of sorts and accountability so that you will deliver a little bit of something. Every Day She Rose is a confronting and bracing play set against the backdrop of the 2016 Black Lives Matter protests that happened at the Toronto Pride Parade and explores this kind of fractured, I guess what becomes a fractured friendship is really at the heart of the play. Could you do a better job than I've just done and tell us a little bit more what the play is about? That was pretty good. I thought. <laughs> that was actually quite well. <laughs> <Very good>. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a play that exists in two worlds um, that really tries to look at the relationship between a white gay man and a black straight woman in the context of a world where reckonings are among us around Mm -hmm. racism, white supremacy, um, the manifestations of racism. And, uh, and also I think Andrea mentioned accountability earlier as something that's a benefit of writing units. But I think this play is largely about accountability. So we have the frame of a black straight woman and a white gay man who live together, whose friendship is fractured when Black Lives Matter stops the Pride Parade. And then we also have the story of a white gay male writer trying to write a play about race with a black Mm -hmm. straight woman. Mm -hmm. I felt it was also a really great examination of friendships. Mm. Um, Some of the friendships that we sometimes might take for granted, because I think there were a lot of people who attended the play who saw themselves in those friendships that everything is wonderful and everything seems to be going well between you. But then something like this comes up and it really does sometimes highlight some fractures that have existed that you've just kind of covered up or swept under the rug because you you want to continue to have the friendship. Um, I mean, I know I've, I've had friendships like that as well. And in some ways it may sound terrible, but you want to avoid talking about those really hard things like sexism or racism or transphobia um, because you, you don't want to lose the friendship. And sometimes something like this happens, which was the protest and the, um, the parade that puts it right in your face and you can't avoid it. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick, I read in an interview that you'd labeled the play a tragic love story. And I was curious, you know, to, to ask each of you, I guess, a, fr- a fractured friendship like the one we explore in the play. Do you think there's hope for reconciliation there and for those guys to remember or to rediscover what it was that kind of, you know, how they fell in love in the first place and what it was that kind of made that friendship work? Or do you think having gone on this journey and learned and discovered about themselves and each other, it's kind of beyond that point? I always want to cry when I think about it as a love story. I think that, you know, part of the journey of the play we're presenting is that in order for it to end the way we all wish it could, you have to start all over. Um, that it's not a, it's not a minor rewrite. Um, and so I, I think that the way that the friendship progresses in the play, there is no reconciliation. And it's, I, I think it's the process of chipping away and chipping away at something until it just becomes irreparable. And I think that that is a thing that exists. And the character Kathy Ann needs to consider her own safety and, and mental health. And Mark needs to 
do some real self work to to figure out how to be able to love himself and respect and love other people. And so it's not a small rewrite. Mm. It's it's uh it's going back to the beginning to save a relationship like that. Well, you know, one of the things that we had discussed early, early, early in the process was the bodyguard, um, because uh, we, we had this whole thing about the bodyguard that was um, in the play that is gone now. Um, I think the one thing that r- remains is you don't believe in happy endings, I think. I think that's still in the play, um, because that that is me. That's Andrea Scott, um, who I think I think maybe Kathy Ann says that, or Andrea says that. Um, and so... I always felt like the play was not going to have a happy ending um, because I felt like that's realistic. And what I think is interesting now looking at it in 2022 is how many people did end up ending friendships, close friendships um, because of the pandemic, because of Black Lives Matter, because of Breonna Taylor, people had opinions that their friends just could not tolerate and said, I can't believe this, but I can't be friends with this person anymore. And it's breaking my heart. Um, That happened a lot. That happened with me for like one person, but I mean, it didn't break my heart because where they post something and you're just like, oh my goodness, am I going to have to delete this person and have a conversation? And you just hope that you don't. And then they post something else and you're like, yeah, I guess I do. So I think that people will connect on that. Mm -hmm. And sorry that we can't provide all the answers you may be looking for, but anyone who claims they can is probably uh, full of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it absolutely shouldn't wrap it up perfectly and beautifully at the end. I think it should do what all good theater does, you know, cause you to to think and to Mm -hmm. discuss and to question. And and I guess more importantly, to listen, which Mm -hmm. is what this piece does so beautifully. Andrea, you mentioned in the virtual book launch that you guys did with Playwrights Canada Press that this was a first collaboration for you. I was wondering, did you have any apprehensions going into it? I'm lazy sometimes with my writing. Like I'm, like I said, I'm a procrast- I procrastinate. I'm, I am somebody who works really well under pressure. If you tell me, oh, you have a play due in two weeks, I can write that play. Mm. Like there's just something that's yeah. like on me to get it done. But when you're with another person, then you can't really slack off. So I was a little worried about that because Nick had seen my work. Like he had gone to see one of my plays a few months before he approached me. So he knew he he was aware of what I could do. But I was like, man, I mean, me writing those plays that have been staged, it takes me forever to write a play. It takes me sometimes years to write a play. Um, And I don't, I didn't feel like we had years to write this. So um, I, I was worried about him seeing my lax process. I, I would have to really pick up the pace and, and do the work. Nick, what about you? I have, like I mentioned, I, I, I've worked on a lot of musicals, which are very collaborative. And I love the fact that you're kind of all in it together. And when you're stuck with a story that's not working, not every time, but in a lot of cases, you have someone who can be stuck in the abyss with you. Um, I've never co-written a play before this. Um, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't really scared or nervous about it at all. Cause I had hung out with Andrea a few times and really liked her. I guess that the thing that I felt nervous about was just where the subject matter was going to take us. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I don't even know if like scared or nervous is the right word. It was just, 
I felt like we need to proceed with caution. Mm. And uh, I don't think, while we've said it was a hard process, I don't think it could have gone any better in a lot of ways. We could have made more money. But (laughs) but beside that, um, I think that all in all, Andrea and I are friends and I love her. And like the fact that we came out of a really difficult process like that, still wanting to go for drinks and to see see a show together is pretty successful. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Let's just unpick the logistics of your collaboration. I've read in various interviews talking about using Google Docs and kind of sharing scene ideas before going to pages. How did that all work out for you guys? I mean, there was a long time ago when I was very technologically savvy. And then I fell off because things just kept going so quickly and changing. And we tried to do Google Docs that just didn't quite always work for us. So like we already kind of knew what each scene was going to be. And I think we named them. So uh, we we knew what the gist of the scene would be. And um, so Nick would be like, how about I work on um, Trudeau looks good in salmon and you work on, I don't know. I can't remember what the other titles were, but, um, packing our bags or whatever, packing yeah. our bags. Like, right. and so then, you know, so he would work on his, that scene and, and I would work on my scene, the scene that, uh, we agreed on. And then we would like basically switch okay. and, and work on it and add our own touches or say, Oh, I don't know if Kathy would say that, or I don't think that Nick would say that. And, um, that's kind of how we had to do it because, I always had this idea of like two people writing a play together, sitting at a table with their laptops kind of touching each other and they're yeah. looking at each other. But that's not that's not realistic. No, no, not when no. both people have very busy lives. But also, how would that even work? Like what we're both I don't know. writing the same thing that we're talking as we write? Like, I don't understand that. Well, that would be a Google image. Doc thing, right? Like that would yeah. be a Google yeah. Doc thing because it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's working like live, right? There, there's but actually no, a that... setting in, uh, I've never done it before, but there is a setting in Final Draft where you can live collaborate on a on, on a document like that. We should have tried that. We should have tried that. Where, we yeah. could have. But I love... I love that you picked out almost like a super objective for each scene because that way you mm. chart the entire journey of the play and can check that it's holding up structurally. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of different processes mm. throughout this, which is cool because A, it's really outside the way I work individually. And also um, we got to ditch some stuff when it didn't work. But there was a period where we were just writing scenes without any responsibility to the play as well. Or we'd go apart and write monologues and think, is this going to fit somewhere. We were open to it being non-linear. The first draft without the Andrean uh, layer jumped through time, mm-hmm. all over the place through time. So we had a lot of material. There was actually quite a bit we didn't use mm. either. So nearer the end, it was more of like sewing the show together and then adjusting scenes to fit more of a flowing narrative. But it was cool. We really dipped our toes into mm-hmm. a lot of different creation processes. Mm. Well, you definitely landed on something really interesting, which I think keeps it really fluid and pacey on the page. Mm. The The shape and form was really interesting to me because I just put down a copy of this play, Still No Idea, uh, which was staged at the Royal Court in 2018. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mm. it. It was a follow-up on the play, No Idea, from 2010. It's part verbatim theatre, part improv, part comedy sketch show by mm-hmm. Lisa Hammond and Rachel Spence, and it 
explores attitudes to disability. Lisa is a wheelchair user and has a restricted growth condition. Okay. And she and her friend Rachel, who presents as able-bodied, recorded the public's responses to the question, what sort of play would we be in? Oh. Um, but they use a similar convention of switching between their development and writing room discussions mm. and the vignettes where they dramatize the responses that they collected. And I was wondering, Nick, when you first pitched your idea to Andrea, was that convention something that you had in mind from the off? Or how did it emerge? No, that was a journey. So um, Andrea and I actually collaborated on and completed a first draft that was just entirely the story of the fictional characters in the show. Yeah. And that that was presented as a reading and, and what we brought to Nightwood Theatre when we applied for their unit. And it was within their unit that we started to uh, dabble with the meta theatrical device of Nick and Andrea being characters in the show. And that was really when we were challenged to write in a way that kind of scared us or made us feel vulnerable or uncomfortable. Mm. I have to say that from the perspective of the white writer in the collaboration, I've seen a lot of work where writers in positions of privilege or power can kind of um, step away or or further an agenda of look how like tolerant or advanced I am in this by writing stories that condemn people who are maybe more overtly racist or or somehow worse than them, right? And as we got into the territory of write stuff that scares you, I'm like, well, I could write this fictional character being a bigot. Um, but then what I'm presenting to the world could easily be interpreted as, look, look at all the things I am not. I'm so advanced as a white writer that I can condemn all these awful racist things. So it just felt like we hit a point where we had to put ourselves in there to really bring the conversation into today and, and make it one that people can't look away from, that white writers can't come there and look away from the fact that my character in the show is doing that, is trying to make sure everyone knows he's not racist by writing a really intolerable white character. That's really interesting. How about, how about for you, Andrea? Oh, such a hard play to write, especially since um, one of the things that, um, like, I've, I remember when I uh, was doing a play many years ago, and the the director, who was sort of also kind of the dramaturg, you know, he was like, why don't you um, come up on stage and like, maybe play the scene with this other actor? I was like, I don't like putting myself in my work in any way, shape or form. So no. And he was like, not like not even just to do a little reading. And I was like, absolutely not. I do not put myself in my work. My work is my work. And me is me. And because um, I really don't know how to, I don't know how to write me truthfully, because I kind of think that whatever you're going to put on stage that you're is of yourself, it's probably going to be a polished version of who you are. So I would feel like a liar uh, trying to write myself. Like, I mean, there's definitely the the um, it's somewhat the arrogant Andrea that's that's in there of like w that scene where the confrontation of why did you want to write with me? And it was well, I wanted to write with you, Andrea, because you're a brilliant writer. And I'm like, well, of course, who wouldn't want to work with me? <laughs> <laughs> that's not arrogance that's your sense of humor that's your sense of humor the thing is i kind of remember i think i feel like i actually remember us having that conversation where it was like well why wouldn't yeah. you well, obviously <laughs> well i wanted to ask you as well i mean the so the tension between kathy Ann and mark is palpable i guess how much did you write nick and andrea versus how much came from your organic conversations yeah you want to know did all the fights actually happen <laughs> i mean that's what everyone wants to know 
Everyone wants well, to know I, that. I guess and so. I, I do remember um, when we were working in uh, your office at the condo, um, I was like, you know what would be interesting is if we just like kept a tape recorder running and then we could do it verbatim and you're like, God, no, that's a terrible idea. It's <laughs> like, okay. And you know, I think you're right. Um, so I think that what what you see on stage, or I guess what you see on the page, is a somewhat distilled reflection of some of the disagreements that we had, some of the conversations that we had, some of the discomfort that um, arose out of our writing a, a play together about very difficult topics. Mm. Very very difficult topics. And I and some fiction. Some of it is just oh. pure fiction. But yeah. the thing is that we have agreed on is we're not going to tell you what was said and what wasn't. Yeah. Like yeah. I think that we want to hold the space that any of this could have fully happened and been recorded and put up because to say otherwise is an opportunity for us to go back to that position of trying to, you know, create people who are worse than we are so that we look great. Yes. Right. But I will say there are reflections of things that actually happen in our relationship. There are also things we wrote as fiction that we saw starting to kind of come to life in the rehearsal room later. And so it was very much a lived experience and one that was really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What then about the the decision to 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 name the writers after yourselves and not afford yourself that further level of distance from the material? It's very brave, I, I, I thought. I think it's just about holding us all to a deeper level of account. Like to take that one step back is just protection that I think doesn't serve the piece. I don't know about you, Andrea. It's it's different, probably for you. I just felt like it was kind of gloriously clever to have Andrea and Nick <laughs> on stage. I I loved I loved that, and I do remember that when we talked about how this would be presented, I was like, so would there be four actors on stage then? Like, would we be switching back and forth like would the stage be cut in half and then we would be seeing the writers on one half i was like no 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 the actors are gonna play all of the characters and i was like oh that's gonna be interesting to see and also the actors who play us um i never wanted them to what's the word like copy who we were in our mannerisms like there was no there was no situation where they were following us around or anything um we didn't want anyone doing imitations of Andrea and Nick, uh, but we did we did end up having some no. pretty fantastic actors who did pick up on our mannerisms in the rehearsal halls and use them. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been described as creepy actually in our <laughs> Toronto production. I think that's just the writing, though. You and I know how both of us mm-hmm. talk so well that I think that the writing just communicated us. More I guess than so. We yeah, I thought that was kind of phenomenal because my mom yeah. came to the show and she was just like, "Who is that girl who played you?" Sometimes I thought I was watching you up there but there you were sitting beside me so i don't i just think that was brilliant <laughs> i was like really though really was she really like me like it was interesting <laughs> to sit outside of myself essentially and i'm like is that what people see <laughs> yeah people said that about adrian yeah. but it was yeah. like nick that's what you would be like if you went to the gym <laughs> once in a while <laughs> <laughs> although all he had to do is eat some sour cream and onion ruffles Perfect. and then basically Twinsies. were identical. Right. Right. <laughs> my favorite thing to do. <laughs> the conversation continues after these messages. The Writer's Toolkit is published by Nick Hearn Books. Order direct from the publisher and get 20% off this and other great titles. Visit nickhearnbooks.co.uk. This podcast is fueled by coffee. 
If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. This podcast is fueled by coffee. If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. Welcome back to the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Would you mind taking us through the development journey of the play from your first dinner, Nick, and that first pitch to where we are today? Well, when you take the uh, tour bus uh, that takes you through the everyday Shiro's journey, (laughs) one must start at Sambuca's on Church, um, which is (laughs) an Italian Italian restaurant, cheap and cheerful. Mm -hmm. They make a mean vodka or gin martini, Mm -hmm. and that's where this idea was pitched to Andrea as... Um, an idea to write a show, uh, to co-write a show that examines the relationships between white gay men and black straight women. And that was the extent to which we knew when we started. Okay, And uh, so as far as the development went, we applied for what's called a recommender grant here in Ontario, where essentially the government of Ontario gives some money to theater companies to then grant playwrights, uh, small sums of money. So mm-hmm. Sky Gilbert at the Cabaret Company gave us, I think, $1,000 to split <laughs> to write mm-hmm. the first draft, mm-hmm. as well as um, a stage to do a reading of it on during Pride, okay. which is great. You get a really nice turnout through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we worked with a dramaturge briefly that, during that time as well, Andy. Um, and then we went away and we weren't sure what to do with this project. From there, we applied to two writing labs. We got into mm-hmm. both of them and we chose the one at Nightwood Theatre, which is a really, really gorgeous theatre company here in Toronto that's committed to uh, forwarding the work of women, trans women, and non-binary folk. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they brought us into their Right From the Hip program. So Andrea and I then met with that cohort what was it like once a month for about 10 months yeah, or something like, like that? Once a month, once every six weeks, yeah. you know, depending on how we could all make it work. Yeah. And so there was about eight of us and we all were working on a project. And at the end you get a big reading. Uh, they invite a bunch of people and you get dramaturgical support and some equity actors. Mm-hmm. And it was like a week after that, the artistic director was like, I plan on programming your play next year. And we peed our pants because it was a huge surprise and also um, it was a huge surprise. Exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Did not see that coming. I mean, I, I do remember the day that the artistic director was in the room, like Nightwood didn't really have a big space. So a um, bunch of us were around the table, like all the playwrights. And I think we were going to be doing a little reading. Uh, Nick and I were going to be doing the reading and um, Kelly was the name of the artistic director at the time. And she was about to leave because she had to go get her eyes checked or something or had to pick something up. And I was just like, oh, can you just, can you just like come, like maybe stay for just an hour, just like listen to the first draft of this before you leave. And she said that she's really glad that she just sat down and listened because she said just listening to just that rough draft of what we had done. She was like, I think I want to program this. I was like, thank God. Isn't yeah. that fantastic? Like, Get it, getting people in, hearing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that's all it is, is like... They can envision yeah. what the production will be. So that was really great. And I'm really grateful for that opportunity and Kelly believing in it. Yeah. I'm just so glad it happened so fast as well. Like yeah. with the Canadian new play development timeline is like five, six years. Right. Right. Yeah. And this is this is a play that 
if it had just sat, it would have, I, I think it would have just shriveled up and died. Because yeah. the thing is, you can rewrite this play for the rest of your life based on what's happening in the world, mm-hmm. right? We just had to commit to a moment in time and yeah. write kind of fiercely and um, it, from a place of vulnerability. Imagine if we had workshopped this three more times. We would have rewritten it three more times. Right, like it right, still right. would not be done. No, there's yeah. there's always going to be something. Like I think one of the things we had said is that, you know, these issues, are moving targets yeah. and they're constantly evolving. And so, yeah, you would you would have to just sit down and say, okay, no, we are going to write this play because you're always going to be touching it. You're always going to want to yeah. be like, oh, we're going to have to reference Roe v. Wade mm. or we're going to have to mm. reference, like just, I'm glad, I'm glad it happened when it happened. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, there were some really interesting parallels that I was reading about between you guys and the directors that worked on the play. Could you talk a little bit about that and why that was important? We had a hard time trying to find, uh, we wanted, we definitely wanted it to be a person of color, Mm. preferably queer. Yeah. Um, So initially the idea was for one director? It kind of, I mean, I think we had always, Andrea Donaldson had just stepped into the role of artistic director and she had been our dramaturge. Mm. And so her being attached to the show was a dream. Mm -hmm. But I think what they saw was an opportunity to experiment with a co-directing model, as well as ensure that there's sort of diverse voices and lived experiences in the direction. And so Sedna was brought on as co-director, and that was an absolutely brilliant idea because she's a incredible theater artist and community organizer. But now as we're seeing further productions, others are adapting that co-director model model, um, mm-hmm. which is really exciting because like, mm-hmm. I know in the process of workshopping up to production, the co-director discussion was really alive and really fed the piece as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I think one of the issues that we we had is that we we would have liked to have a, a Black, queer woman or female identifying director of which there are not many in Toronto. And so the people that we approached either were not available or um, didn't feel like it was a good fit or didn't have a lot of experience. And Sedna did yeah, not have yeah. a lot of experience. And so pairing her with Andrea was a really great opportunity for mentorship as well. Okay. Um, and that worked out really, really well. Especially, I, th- I don't know if Sedna had even been at that Pride. Do, do you remember if she'd, she'd been? I can't remember. And had any experience with that day. Um, but she didn't know the Black Lives Matter organizers. She knew some of them. Um, so it was really great to have that voice in the room. Yeah. Those conversations will continue in the rehearsal rooms wherever it's produced with that kind of model. It kind of is constantly holding the play and everybody around it to account in some way. Yeah. I was wondering if that is written into the licensing for future productions where there's a requirement to have that kind of co-directing model. I don't think it's, no. There's no co-directing model. There is uh, in the licensing around having representation in the uh, creative team beyond the actors. Okay. Um, okay. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But we certainly, with looking at, you know, folks who want to license this, we would certainly take great pause if it was, yeah. you know, uh, wanting to be directed by a white straight person, or even frankly, just a white solo white artist, I would really worry about the safety in the room and the yeah. responsibility yes. Yes. to the text. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of talk right now about community safety guidelines and, and theater companies having practices around contracting and, and yeah. safe company safety. And I think this is a play that uh, company safety is really critical. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, 
anyone producing this has creates a room that's collaborative and, and has strong guidelines about how to manage difficult conversations. Mm. Definitely. Mm. And, and I guess stipulate where you can in the creation of work, especially around, uh, you know, casting and your preferences for diverse casting as, as a writer. Um, but I guess at some point, once you push your work out there, you're kind of, you know, hoping and relying on people doing the right thing. Well, yes, but we have to remember that th- th- what happened with the mountaintop mm. and not ever see that happen as well, um, which I don't know if either of you know about what happened with the mountaintop, yeah. Tori Hall's play yeah. about Martin Luther King um, in the States, uh, a theater company at a university decided that they would cast Martin Luther King as a white man as an experiment. Shocking. And she had to be like, cease and desist, yeah. do not yeah. do this. <laughs> shocking you know she's like i did and she even like there's a bunch of interviews with her she was like i didn't think i would have to put those no words in my contract that the role must be played by a black man but i guess sometimes you have to be that prescriptive uh, even last week there was a news story i was reading about a production i think it was in the uk a, a production of the king and i in Yellowface, oh. and it's just like it's 2022 are we, we seriously that happened that that got beyond a meeting where someone thought hey i've got an idea you know, when I was living in Texas, it was constantly the case on these Facebook groups of local theater groups talking about um, how to stage hairspray, hairspray with a non-diverse cast. Hairspray you is know? the one that all the schools want to do, but they don't have any black students. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, there are other shows. There are other shows. <laughs> there are a lot of other shows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you have to be very careful with the wording in your contracts and yeah. you know, talk to your agent. And, you know, sometimes if it's too vague, people will find a way of uh, fucking with you, unfortunately, yeah. and fight you. Well, I haven't been fortunate yet to see a production of the play, but it's certainly a brilliant read. Thank you. That's such a nice thing to say. Well, the text is available now, and I definitely encourage everyone to pick up a copy and share this work far and wide. The themes and issues at the heart of the play are certainly not exclusive to Toronto, right? I agree. Well, I think we're also talking about what stories make it across the pond or make it to different cities. And, you know, I think a lot up here in Canada, there's a lot of productions of very, very local American shows that are set in a very specific region of the US or small town. But then when it comes to a show that would be seen as local to Toronto, there's this feeling of, well, you know, there isn't an audience for that outside of Toronto. It's a Toronto story. And so it's interesting to me which stories get seen as hyper-local and which stories get seen as universal. And I think that what we're looking at in Everyday She Rose is, yeah, a protest that occurred in Toronto, but a very, very significant protest internationally. And also it's a story of a, a, a group of people who took action and the impact that had on everyone's sense of their own privilege and sense of supremacy and entitlement. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah, our set here at Buddies when Nightwood did it had the CN Tower in the background, but it doesn't have to, right? No. This mm. is a story that's set mm. in Toronto, but I think could really... Oh, it transcends. Yes. ...really speak to audiences in lots of places. Definitely. Exactly. Definitely. I would love... Like, that's the thing that makes it so timely yeah, but also yeah. universal 
and timeless. Yeah. Is that I can see somebody creating a set like, I don't know if you've ever seen um, Babe Pig in the City, <laughs> the sequel. Of course. <laughs> oh, God. Where are you going with this? <laughs> like, you see Babe and he's going on his little journey and it looks like he's crossing through Toronto and New York and Australia because oh, all right, of right, the right, like right. landmarks are kind of clustered together and you're like, okay, I buy yeah. it. <laughs> he's traveled all over the world. Sure. You could do that with our set. You could yeah, like do like a surrealist avant-garde kind of thing with the CN Tower yeah. and the, the, the Space Needle. And <laughs> <laughs> I just want to reflect that um, according to Andrea, by the way, uh, if you add Babe Pig in the City to the Bodyguard, you have Every Day She Rose. So <laughs> just go. go ahead and write there that right go. on the cover. <laughs> Something to think about for your uh, screen adaptation. <laughs> really, some killer pop culture references today, Andrea. <laughs> Listen, I love Bay Pig in the City and I love the bodyguard and I love them for very, very different reasons. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Thank you both so much for your time. That brings me to my final question, which is just to ask each of you if you'd leave us with your top tips for maintaining a healthy writing practice. Um, don't be hard on yourself. If you need to take a day or two or a week off from your work of writing, um, you should do it. Um, you're probably exhausted and you are tired and you need your brain to rest. And you will come back to your work in progress with fresh eyes if you just close your laptop or put the notebook down, go for a walk, go to the movies with your friends, have dinner, and then come back to it later. It will still be there. And you'll find something that you, you didn't know was there when you come back. I would say embrace structure. And I don't necessarily just mean writing structure. Um, I mean, give yourself some structure around your work as a writer. So that means getting dressed when you write, getting up and taking a shower and putting your clothes on. Take it seriously. Give yourself some structure. Also, sometimes structure is your best friend when you don't know where you're going with a story. You know, sit down and think about the beats of what you're trying to do and how you're going to get there. The organic flow will come, but sometimes you need some structure. That's fantastic. Thank you guys so much for your time. It's been such a joy to yeah. chat with you. Yes, it was great. Great to meet you. I'm really excited to read more of your work now as well. So thank you. Thank you, Paul. It was so fun. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. Thanks. You're listening to the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Fantastic to sit down and chat with Andrea and Nick and find out more about their first collaboration, Every Day She Rose. I definitely recommend you pick up a copy. Every Day She Rose and Nick's play, Body Politic, are both published by and available from Playwrights Canada Press. Visit playwrightscanada.com. Andrea's new play, Controlled Damage, is published by Sirocco Drama, as are her earlier plays, Eating Pomegranates Naked and Better Angels, which are available in a single volume. As always, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Paul Calvergi or visit my website, paulcalvergi.com. I'd love to hear which episodes you've enjoyed the most and any thoughts or ideas for future episodes too. Until then, stay inspired. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Writer's Toolkit podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and share the link with your friends. This podcast is fueled by coffee. If you'd like to support the show, you'll find the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. <laughs>